Welcome to the Bad Bad News Podcast, where we talk about economic and real estate related current events. My name is Samira Fatihar. Let's get started and try to make sense of it all. So what's going on in the past few weeks? A lot of economic data has been released signaling a recovery is near, but is this really the case? There's also been a lot of talk about the rental housing market, and I thought it would be a great topic to explore. So we look at two major cities, New York City and San Francisco. We'll then dive into the European market and see how they're faring through the COVID-19 pandemic economically. Specifically, we'll be looking at the city of Lisbon, Portugal. Before I dive into the economic update, I wanted to clarify some things. I've learned that looking at data in the middle of a crisis can tell you a lot of things at that moment in time. It's extremely hard to predict what will happen next. So please take each data set that I present you with with a grain of salt. Though I'm still a firm believer that our fundamentals are wrong and we will have a long recovery ahead of us, I can be proven wrong. In fact, I hope I am wrong and we recover from this a lot quicker than we think. In the last several weeks, a lot of economic data has come out. Most have been positive, but is it too soon to tell if the recovery has begun? I believe so, especially since we're seeing a resurgence in COVID-19 cases across the country. I've said this before, and I will stress it once again. A recovery cannot begin until we can substantially mitigate the risks associated with the virus. This means that the best bet is a vaccine. Another element is that of consumer psychology. If someone doesn't feel safe to go out and spend, they simply won't. How do we make them feel safe again? Again, I think a vaccine is going to be the key. Though, I will mention that we still don't know how effective a vaccine is, and if this will come back every year like the seasonal flu. There's still a number of questions we don't have the answers to, and that's definitely adding to the uncertainty that consumers feel. Looking at the recent PMI, or Purchasing Managers Index data, for the manufacturing and service sector, it looks like the worst is over, and we're on our way to a rapid recovery. I've attached a graph on my blog, uh, which you can find at rockwellconsultantsllc.com. And if you were to look at the graph, you'd see that we've experienced a V-shaped recovery, at least from the PMI data. But does this really tell the whole story? What it does tell us is that purchasing managers feel that things are recovering and we're moving ahead. Can we go back down again if a major resurgence of COVID-19 cases arise, as we might be experiencing right now? Yes. But this is telling us, at this very moment in time, these managers don't expect a detrimental economic shutdown in the near future. Now, let's look at the other side of the coin. And what I mean by this is the consumer confidence data. If we were to look at the graph on the blog, we'd notice that consumer confidence has yet to recover the way PMI has. This is quite an interesting contrast because purchasing managers are confident that their supply chain is going back towards pre-COVID-19 levels. But if consumers don't yet feel comfortable to spend, will this in the end affect the economic recovery? The simple answer is yes. No matter how socially distant and how many precautions are taken by businesses, if the consumer doesn't feel ready yet, they simply won't spend their money. 
As stated previously, our best bet is a vaccine. There was another interesting statistic that came out showing that the number of people collecting state unemployment was decreasing, while those obtaining federal benefits were actually surging. How could these numbers be so far off from what is being officially reported? Many blame a lag time from when they were first filed to now when it is being reported. In any case, it's raising eyebrows because having this happen at the same time doesn't make sense. This is suggesting that either the unemployment numbers or the unemployment benefit numbers are wrong. Whatever the case is, it's something that I think everyone should be aware of. Another interesting phenomenon we're witnessing is the rise in businesses filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. I thought it would be helpful to first define what Chapter 11 bankruptcy is and how it works. Chapter 11 is a type of bankruptcy that focuses on reorganization of the company's debts and assets. In the majority of cases, the companies don't go out of business during this whole process. It's a very lengthy process, and if the reorganization doesn't work correctly, the company will go out of business. It's like a last-ditch effort companies make to keep their businesses alive. I decided to compile a list of medium-to-large-sized U.S. companies that have filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2020 thus far. I'm going to read you that list, and I warn you, it is very lengthy. But the reason I'm doing this is to illustrate the magnitude of the economic effects the COVID-19 pandemic has caused thus far. Many are familiar names. The list includes 24-Hour Fitness, Acorn, Art Van Furniture, Baker Square, Bar Louis Restaurants, Borden Dairy, Boy Scouts of America, Brooks Brothers, Chesapeake Energy, Chuck E. Cheese, Clean Energy Collective, Cosi, Craftworks Holding, Dean and DeLuca, Diamond Offshore Drilling Incorporated, Earthfair, Exide Technologies, Fairway Market, Finger Hut, Food First Global Restaurants, Frontier Communications, GNC, Gold's Gym, Good Rich Quality Theaters, The Hertz Corporation, Hopcat, Hornbeck Offshore Services, Intelsat, JCPenney, J. Crew, John Vervatos, Crystal, Libby Incorporated, LSE Communications, Lucky Brand Jeans, Lucky's Market, McClatchy, Models Sporting Goods, Neiman Marcus, Peter Piper Pizza, Pier One, Roman Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg, Stage Stores, Sir La Table Incorporated, True Religion Brand Jeans, Tuesday Morning, U.S. Rugby, Village Inn, Vivus, Whiting Petroleum Corporation, and last but not least, XFL. To put this in perspective, in 2019 alone, there were a total of 49 medium to large size companies that filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Granted, Chapter 11 bankruptcy does not necessarily mean you go out of business, as we already know. But for a number of these businesses, it does. The list I read you is a total of 51. 51 companies that have gone into Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2020 thus far, and we still have five more months left in the year. I think it's worthy to note that many firms are still announcing furloughs, so not really bankruptcy, but they are cutting costs by reducing their employee load. 
Just this past week, United Airlines announced that they would furlough 36,000 in October. This is just one example of a multitude of companies that are following the same route. Now, let's turn our attention to the rental housing market. I've been getting a ton of questions about it, and I think it'd be a great topic to explore. I thought it would be best to look at two major cities, New York City and San Francisco. With the COVID-19 economic implications, it should be absolutely obvious that a lot of renters are having trouble paying their rent, which in turn ends up hurting the landlord's ability to pay for their mortgage, if they have one, but also to be able to pay for insurance and property taxes. It's a ripple effect that I think is important for everyone to understand. The economic impacts we're seeing from this pandemic is not hurting one specific population. It affects all of us in some way. When we hear the words, we are in this together, it really is true. We all know that New York City is famous for its pricey housing units. So when an economic downturn happens, like what we're currently witnessing, it makes absolute sense that rent prices would also be decreasing. But it's happening at a rate that hasn't been seen in the last three decades. Before I get into the specific numbers, I think it's especially important to first point out the unemployment numbers. The New York Department of Labor released unemployment numbers for May 2020. In it, it showed that New York City's unemployment rate was 18.3%. This is an incredibly high number, seeing that the official unemployment rate for the U.S. in the same time period was only 13.3%. That means New York City was 5 percentage points higher than the U.S. as a whole, on average. So if New York City is known for its rent being about twice the national average, and now having its unemployment rate higher than the national average, it should signal a red flag to everyone. Two-thirds of the New York population rents housing units. Many of these renters have numerous roommates. According to CHIP, or the Community Housing Improvement Program, one-fourth of renters haven't been able to pay since March. That means four months of rent has not been paid thus far. Evictions are currently on hold, but it's only a matter of time before the state can no longer help these renters. It's a sad reality, but one that we seem to be kicking down the road hoping for some miracle to occur. This impact could potentially inflict generational levels of poverty for these families that will have to be evicted and move to a more affordable area. Even the word affordable creates an image in the minds of many Americans as the ghetto. The majority of people that end up in the ghetto never leave, and neither do many of their descendants, unfortunately. What I'm trying to stress here is the potential for major negative impacts if this situation isn't handled correctly. As a real estate consultant, I believe it's also important to understand the landlord's side in these turbulent times. Many of these smaller landlords have mortgage payments to make. If their tenants are unable to pay rent, landlords subsequently cannot pay their mortgage. Thankfully, the government has urged landlords to work with their debt service providers. But let's look at a worst case scenario happening. Imagine these landlords evict their current tenant, and in order to find new tenants, they have to substantially decrease the rent price. This then affects the asset price, because it's all based on how much income you can produce from each asset. Before you know it, many of these landlords could be underwater on their mortgage. This means that the value of their property could be worth less than the mortgage, exactly like what we saw during the housing market crash of 2008. Do I know this will definitely happen? Of course not. I don't have a crystal ball. But this is a scenario that should be in the back of everyone's minds. Now, let's look at the institutional landlords, the ones that most likely don't have a mortgage payment to make. 
property taxes in most major cities in the U.S., including New York City, is extremely high. Let's explore another possible scenario. Tenants become evicted, and many of these properties have not had any rent paid for several months. Property taxes and insurance become due. These institutional landlords won't be able to pay their property taxes or insurance payments. This in turn hurts both the city as well as the insurance companies. The city could lose a substantial amount of revenue and will have to make many cuts to deal with the shortfall. Many of these programs could be ones that deal with those who end up losing their homes as well. Insurance companies would in turn end up raising their premiums to offset their revenue loss, something that any company would do. But as a city, it's not as easy to do that when everyone is hurting. This is not a scenario I hope happens, but again, it's possible to envision, especially when a lot of the data sets are showing a grim reality. Miller Samuel, a real estate appraisal and consultancy agency, creates market reports for the Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens areas. In their latest report, they showed a number of areas where the market was lagging. They showed that the rental price year over year changed by 4.8%. It went down 4.8%. This could be for a number of reasons. Prices don't change until a unit is on the market and able to find a tenant willing to lease it at that rate. With everything that we know about the unemployment rate and many tenants not paying their rent but also not leaving their apartments, this could certainly skew the data. Another important variable is the fact that in New York City, there is still a lot of new inventory that is still coming on the market now and in the short-term future. Many of these prices are based on the new inventory and the tenants that are able to afford these prices at this time. The number of leases increased from May to June, and I would certainly attribute that to new inventory, but it's still down 35.6% from June of 2019. Another interesting metric was that of listing discount. In an expensive market like Manhattan, you'd usually have people outbidding one another to get the property and the landlord going with the highest amount possible. Listing discount is now at 2%, according to Miller Samuel. But according to RealPage, a real estate property management company, they've seen on average 8% off asking price. Taking either of those numbers signals the urgency and desperation landlords are facing in these turbulent times. Vacancy rate is another important metric to look at. It's 3.67% reported in the Miller-Samuel report. It's not necessarily high, but since evictions are on hold right now, I don't anticipate to see that figure increase until the eviction moratorium is lifted. Though, it is important to see that vacancies have increased over time since last June, which was at 1.6%. New York City, Los Angeles, and San Francisco were at the top of the charts when it came to net moveouts in the second quarter of major cities across the U.S. This is important to point out because New York City was seen as one of the hottest and strongest residential rental markets not too long ago. And to see it fall this fast only shows how vulnerable it already was. Granted, the COVID-19 pandemic wasn't something anyone could easily prepare for, but it shows how many jobs were impacted in a city where rent was twice the national average. I don't know about you, but maybe the prices were a bit overinflated to begin with. Now, let's look at the other side of the country, where we're seeing something similar happen as well. San Francisco suffered a large amount of movements, as I already mentioned. But San Francisco is a bit of a different animal, since many jobs are tied to the Silicon Valley, and many of these Silicon Valley Corporation stocks are skyrocketing at this time. But so many people are still leaving the San Francisco area. There's a few reasons I believe this is happening. 
Much of Northern California was under a stay-at-home order for about two to three months. Many of these tech firms had no choice but to transition their employees to remote work. With no end in sight for the COVID-19 pandemic, many companies have extended their employees' remote work until the end of the year, or even further, with some like Twitter saying workers will now have the choice to work from home forever. Many of these employees have realized that they no longer have to live in the same city or even near the same city that they work, if they do indeed work remotely. So there's definitely an influx of people moving out of the San Francisco area at the moment, which easily accounts for the high move-out rate we were seeing. Now, let's do a fair comparison of New York City to San Francisco. And now let's explore the unemployment data. The unemployment rate for the San Francisco, Oakland, and Fremont area actually decreased from April of 13.2% to May 12.7%. Again, I attribute this to the tech companies being able to thrive in these times of uncertainty in the market. They have been carrying an extreme weight in the NASDAQ and S&P 500 indices, so I don't see unemployment being a big problem in this sector at this time. Now, all the possible worst-case scenarios I described that could happen in New York City could also happen in San Francisco, though I expect San Francisco could experience it a lot faster. What I mean by this is with so many tenants already relocating to other places, we're able to see a more drastic price drop. This is happening because these units are able to come to market faster, and landlords are having to reduce their prices to entice new tenants to move in. According to Zumper and an apartment-finding app, they have recorded a record 11.8% price drop year-over-year for a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco. So, Zumper created a chart of the Bay Area metro and showed which cities were seeing the highest price decreases. Believe it or not, San Francisco wasn't even the worst. Cupertino saw a whopping 16% decrease, followed by Mountain View at 15%, and then Emeryville at 14%. This should underscore just how much the Bay Area has become affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. It's interesting to see that the Bay Area is having larger drops than New York City. I believe this is because so many people are willingly leaving these cities on their own, instead of waiting for the eviction moratoriums to be lifted. To be fair, there have been areas that have seen growth in price. Livermore saw a shocking 15% price increase followed by Campbell at 5% and Concord at 2%. And it's extremely interesting because this shows that there is definitely demand for more suburban areas as opposed to the bigger urban areas. But I'm more surprised to see that both Oakland and Daly City are seeing increases of 5% and 4%, respectively. They are pretty urban areas, though. PG&E did announce that they would be relocating from San Francisco to Oakland, so it's not only tenants moving to Oakland, but also companies not wanting to rent higher-priced spaces in San Francisco. Like I stated earlier, another important metric to look at is that of vacancy rate. The vacancy rate in San Francisco is at 6.2%, according to RealPage. This is a large number, and like I stated before, I believe this is attributed to many tech employees relocating to more affordable areas to continue their remote work. All right, and now for a gear change. I call this segment the European View, and I'd like it to become a permanent segment in both my blog and podcast. I think that with everything going on around the world, it's beneficial to understand what's happening in other countries to give us a comparison. I've chosen Europe since I believe they're most similar to our country's economic system as opposed to Asia. 
This week, we're diving into Lisbon, Portugal. So, a few years ago, I came across a video on Vimeo called You'll Soon Be Here. I highly recommend it. It was an incredible documentary about the life of the locals in Lisbon and how many of them were forced out of the city due to the influx of foreigners buying housing and renting it out to Airbnb to make more money than they would if they rented it to locals. The unemployment numbers in Portugal have always been high. This statement is true for many countries in the European Union. The European debt crisis of 2012 took a big toll on the youth population in these countries. So if we were to compare Portugal's youth unemployment rate to the EU, we'd see a big difference. Even now, currently, Portugal's youth unemployment rate is about 6 percentage points higher than that of the whole EU. At its peak, Portugal's youth unemployment rate hit about 42%, as compared to the EU as a whole, which only saw a high of 24%. During the debt crisis, Portugal, as well as Greece, Spain, and Italy, suffered from high amounts of fiscal debt. The EU came together and bailed the countries out, but with criteria that they needed to meet, which they did. One of the lasting effects, though, of the bailout is that there's still a high unemployment rate in these countries. Given that the youth unemployment is high, many of these young adults have had a hard time finding a place to live. In Portugal, not too long ago, the government gave out incentives to foreign investors to buy housing. These foreign investors then went and started renting them on Airbnb. This in turn started increasing the prices on these residential properties because they were able to make more money. But this also made it impossible for the Lisbon locals to own or rent anything. On a tangent note, and a note that I'm extremely passionate about. I have been extremely vocal about investors investing in real estate in foreign countries. Not only are there many tax and legal implications that you need to know, the local economy is extremely important to understand. I say this because I truly believe the rent caps in place in many large cities around Germany would not have been needed had the foreign investors learned basic German economics. What I mean by German economics is that the German wage growth is extremely slow due to their inflation rate being extremely low. This means yearly rent increases would not only be unsustainable in that market, but would prove to be detrimental. The German economy prides itself on stability, meaning you may not get a wage increase or a rent increase, but you will get paid the agreed amount for a number of years. Even during the global financial crisis of 2008, Germans didn't lay off their workers because they understood the major cost of having to retrain people when things started picking up again. Instead, they cut, cut workers' hours and kept everything moving at a slower pace. When you have foreign investors come in to these kinds of markets without any knowledge of the local economy, it becomes a disaster for both sides. I will forever be an advocate of an educating investors, foreign or domestic, about the economy, as that is a major variable in determining the viability of any investment product. Anyway, let's get back to Lisbon's real estate market. I was very happy to come across news that the Portuguese government is starting to address the housing affordability crisis. Granted, they definitely had a big role in creating the crisis, but they're doing something about it now. The government has created a program called Renda Segura, where the city becomes the tenant of many of these residential units. The city then finds its own tenants to live in these units. By becoming the middleman, the city is able to provide landlords a steady income, 
albeit lower than what they would normally get off of Airbnb, but also address the affordability crisis by making these residential units affordable to the average local Lisboan. Now, to many Americans, the thought of a government entity becoming a middleman to a rental transaction sounds scary. How will I know the tenants will care for the apartment? Will I be able to get rid of them if they end up destroying my unit? These are valid questions, and ones I don't have an answer for. But I would assume the government would provide some kind of deposit in the event that things are damaged. But I would like Americans to understand that there's a similar program here called Section 8 Housing. I'm sure you already have a bad taste in your mouth. Section 8 housing, that sounds terrible. The U.S. government basically pays for up to 75% of the rent, while those who qualify are those who earn a very low income, elderly, or disabled people. They're required to pay the remaining 25%. It sounds like a pretty safe investment, right? I'd say yes, for the most part. But I'm a big picture person, and I see a systematic problem that arises from this program. In large cities in the U.S., rent tends to be many folds higher than the average rental price in the U.S. Let's look at an example of someone who makes $15,000 a year and obtains Section 8 housing in Los Angeles. Great, they only have to pay 25% of the full rent amount and are able to save money. They suddenly start making more money, and suddenly they lose the assistance from the government. And now, they have to fork over 100% of the rent due. In this case, there is no incentive for them to move forward and find a higher-paying job since rent is fairly unaffordable in the Los Angeles area to begin with. Unfortunately, many of these people that use Section 8 housing are minorities and people of color. How can we expect to raise them up if there is a systematic cycle that creates an incentive to not get a higher-paying job? How do we control the landlords from asking too much of their tenants? It all comes down to inflated asset prices our inflation rate, extremely slow wage growth, increased cost of living, and the expectation from landlords to receive yearly escalations of 2-3%. to After years and years of this, you arrive at the point where we're currently at, a real estate market that cannot be sustained. There's a lot of lessons that Americans can learn from its European counterparts. But by no means am I saying Europe is perfect. But at least there, there's a sense of collectiveness. By leaving a population segment behind, you end up leaving everyone behind in a sense. I'm hopeful that these experiences that we're all going through right now will make us more collective than not. We need to continue to be vigilant and keep our eyes on the data of both the health statistics of the pandemic as well as the economic metrics. They both relate. And, as I've said before, an economic recovery cannot begin until people feel safe to go back to pre-COVID-19 behaviors. And right now, the only way I can see that happening is for a vaccine to come out. Please check out my blog at rockwellconsultantsllc.com. Please stay safe and healthy, everyone. I'll talk to you again in two weeks.